0: The Octarine Tree, a podcast exploring the meaning of ecology, spirit and human relationship. From South Western Australia, I'm your host, Byron John. Joel. G'day mob, welcome back to The Octarine Tree podcast. Today's episode, I am really chuffed to be presenting a discussion that I had with David Holmgren. David Holmgren is best known as the co-originator with Bill Mollison of the Permaculture Concept following the publication of Permaculture One in 1978. Since then he has developed three properties, consulted and supervised in urban and rural projects and presented lectures, workshops and courses at a wide variety of events and venues in Australia and around the world. His writings over those three decades span a diversity of subjects and issues but always illuminating another aspect of permaculture thinking. David's been a real intellectual mentor of mine for many years. He actually grew up in Fremantle where his parents were politically active and owned a technical bookstore, so he was very politically aware and had what was in a pre-internet world an amazing access to information through his uh, parents' bookstore. I was pleasantly surprised during this discussion to discover that David shares many observations that I do regarding certain swellings and contractions and permutations and mutations within the political theater at the moment. In particular, an apparent flipping between the right and the left when it comes to advocating freedom of speech and fighting censorship so i really hope you enjoy this conversation with david holmgren i was really chuffed to speak to him it really is i find it's one of my favorite things in the world when i get to connect with true intellectual mentors it's it's a real buzz when someone's had such a huge influence on your thinking throughout your life, to actually be able to connect with them. Anyway, without further ado, Mr. David Holmgren. David Holmgren, welcome to the Octarine Tree Podcast. How are you doing this morning? Uh, Good, in uh, wintry, cold Hepburn Springs. Yeah, pretty chilly at the moment. Are you as wet as
1: we are at the moment? We're getting wetter than it has been for 30-odd years in the southwest. Yeah, it feels that way here. Not so much um, maybe the absolute amount of rain, but the continuous gentle wet and uh, what's gone with that is incredible cloudy weather. So there's just, yeah, moisture seeping everywhere like we haven't seen it for a long time too that's interesting it's in the southwest. I remember as a kid in the
0: southwest growing up in the 80s, winters were long and wet and cold and they felt like a proper Mediterranean climate winter. Then I was speaking to friends who are from other parts of the world who now live here commenting on how our winters are relatively clear and dry and I was thinking to myself, it didn't used to be that way. Yeah, Winter was winter and you look around the farms in the southwest and a lot of them had serious drainage dug into them in the 60s and 70s because they were particularly wet decades. And now, of course, that's a hindrance, sending all that water off the farm. But it does, it, does, it feels like it, it, an old Perth winter. Yeah, uh, good. You guys are in,
1: you're in lockdown at the moment. Victoria's well and truly locked down. Uh, yeah, sort of, uh, theoretically, it doesn't sort of uh, make a lot of difference uh, to us other than the, um, uh, the constant obsession with the process that's around in society. But, uh, you know, living a more home-based lifestyle and, uh, you know, largely work online and uh, being winter so we don't have any tours, um, those things don't uh, really directly Affect us. Your life
0: experience hasn't changed too much.
1: No, remarkably little. I think the psychosocial environment and the sense of uh, the larger, rapid shifts in the world happening on multiple fronts is certainly a a sense of that um, accelerating. It's hard to
0: escape that isn't it the kind of the zeitgeist the strange pressure and turbulence and conversation and lack of conversation yeah it's hard to escape the feeling of it yeah COVID seems to be forcing people out of a business as usual headspace if nothing else
1: yeah I think that's some of the positives uh, perhaps the the uh, the more difficulties uh the 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 widening gulfs and acceptable conversation between people within um, certain groups, within families, within neighbours. And in a lot of ways I see it as very characteristic of of my future scenarios work uh, mm-hmm. uh, and my brown tech scenario where there becomes in, this increasing divide of people being in the system or outside of the system and and having a sense of coming to forks in the road and one way or another having to choose between Mm. uh, the sense of security and certainty and hope within a more constrained, constricted world or a road that is more to a, a, a freer but risk-taking, mm-hmm. self-reliance on the fringes, whether conceptual or geographic, of of those systems. And those systems themselves becoming what I called back then more than a decade ago the re-emergence of a command economy mm. where the government decides what's happening and uses the power of corporations to enact that, which is very, very different from the free market ideology, which has been ruling us for you know quite yeah. some decades.
0: Yeah, I see people on both sides of the traditional political fence becoming nervous for different reasons at the moment. On one hand, I'm seeing those with more of a um, suspicious kind of libertarian streak in them becoming increasingly suspicious and libertarian and concerned at the uh, increasing expansion of the surveillance state, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. On another side, I'm seeing people... Uh, how do I say it? Myself, I've personally never felt invested in or terribly influenced by the consensus reality. Mm. I've always felt and experienced life feeling a little bit like an outsider to it and not really uh, investing heavily in it. And I'm watching now a lot of people, many of who are very, very intelligent, worldly people, but it's the first time they've really had to sit with the reality of a dissolving worldview. Yeah. And it, it's fr- Freaking them out, yeah, and they're doubling down. There's a doubling down on both sides, or many sides, many angles. Yes.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's uh, uh, very much the case. I mean, it's it's extraordinary. Without making a, a judgment on whether it's appropriate or not, the lack of reflection for people who come from uh, 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 a left uh, advocacy of free speech, uh, a great long lineage going back you know, more than a century, uh, finding themselves advocating uh, cens- censorship on a, yeah. a massive scale, obviously in the belief that that's uh, necessary and good, when that position was a classic position of the conservative right mm-hmm. that saw that there were things that society needed to clamp down on for the good of the whole. Yeah, and that, whereas we now see on the right this great advocacy of the freedom of speech, and this flipping on the left, yeah. without much reflection that that's actually happened, and I, I find that extraordinary. Not yeah. so much you know like the judgment about you know what's right and what's wrong, but people not even. Uh, being aware of that
0: yeah it is it, i've been watching that with some interest and concern i didn't see it coming and it, it's interesting taking the conventional model of politics you know left right authoritarian libertarian and actually seeing well those are discussions on how society should be managed but the kind of impulses and character types that actually cluster to those positions depending on what is actually going on in the world around them I didn't see it coming. I didn't see the, the left and a lot of my friends, well, most of them traditionally were leftists and I was a uh, card-carrying, punk, hippie leftist as an adolescent. And now, b- because i am personally been raising concern about what I see as a very concerning slippery slope drift toward the dissolving of basic human liberties that we've taken for granted over the last few generations, I've been accused of being right-wing.
1: <laughs> it's funny. Uh, yes. Well, yeah, you know, I've had that exp- experience for a number of years. You know, during the the Trump years, sort of, um, you know, putting nuanced positions that. People could only interpret uh, as being a, uh, a Trump supporter. Yeah, <laughs> could... I had yeah. the same
0: thing happened to me. It was amazing. Yeah, I mean, any given day, depending on who I was speaking to, I could have been a far left or far right or too centrist
1: or. <laughs> I, I suppose for me, this this characteristic of this brown tech world, which is happening not in the ways I imagined it, with. Mm-hmm. Sort of flourishes and narratives like more bizarre than uh, anything I uh, thought or certainly wrote uh, about. But that one of the important things is to maintain those communications with people across those divides and that that mm. needs to be maintained at that local level, neighbourhood level, uh, colleagues, uh, family. Where possible, because the great challenge and threat is that the the enormous stresses and strains that uh, society is going to as it goes deeper into the limits to growth crisis that we know is is uh, this great transformation is inevitable in diff- mm-hmm. in different ways that um, that risk of of people seeing those with another view as being the cause Mm -hmm. of the adverse circumstances is an increasing risk. So those uh, culture wars that generate into uh, uh, what might be analogous to ethnic uh, uh, civil wars, uh, um, you know, are, are real risks that, In a way, I feel in my youth growing up during the years of the anti-Vietnam campaign that sort of filled my childhood in WA, um, as my parents were sort of frontline activists in that. And, you know, certainly if the war had gone on another few years, I would have been one of those people you know, burning my draft card in public and going to jail or alternatively uh, being on the run, you know, from one safe house to another. Yeah. But that I saw at that time that if a country, the lucky country, had such a bad turn of future circumstances that the dangers of sort of... uh, fascist demonization of minority groups deflecting from elites blame onto some smaller portion of society as this is you know these are the people mm-hmm. whose fault it is yeah <laughs> uh, that you know we're in this bad space that that possibility was very real and that of course this is historically in these times of great stress all elites, tend to do that, to deflect discontent and concern about the system. Oh, oh it's that group, you know, often of course it's been for ethnic foreigners or or whatever, but the possibility that that could emerge um, out of this, um, you know, the response to this virus is one that I, I find, um, you know, is accelerating from a situation where the mad conspiracy theory of one day becomes the uh, the floated possibility of next month uh, and becomes the inevitable certainty of the next year. Those types of rapid changes uh, mm. are this world that we're yeah. juggling with and I think in, in permaculture and related networks, uh, you know, we have that, that context of maintaining those communications and that, uh, that acceptance of uncertainty um, rather than uh, at the same time that holding true to values and actions we believe in. So, yeah, a very testing time in that sense. When you speak of conspiracy theory becoming a
0: possibility, I consult a wide range of information sources. During the Trump era, I watched many of them being censored. And then post-January 6, quote-unquote, what do they call it? the, uh, oh, the, the insurrection. The insurrection. The insurrection. <laughs> the theatre. theatre of fifth-generational warfare. It's the sad theatre. I watched countless content creators online and their channels just go down just be shut down just their youtube channels were shut down and then mm. they would spark up their instagram and say hey my youtube's being shut down then their instagram would be shut down and they were dropping like flies because the likes of google facebook and twitter had a ostensibly a zero tolerance policy on certain topics And, I mean, I'm not necessarily suggesting that I believe the US election was rigged. However, I do know that if you made that statement or even asked the question, you would be shut down. Mm. And the same with the lab leak theory. Mm. Anyone suggesting that had their channels shut down only for it to be
1: sanctioned as a possibility a few months later? Yeah, so this is ironically the outsourcing by the sovereign state of that central core function of any sovereign realm, which is censorship for some notion of the common good. Mm. that And whether we see there's no validity of that function or mm. some limited validity, it's always rested with the sovereign state. Mm. But essentially it's been outsourced to a bunch of corporate clowns yeah. who've happened to found themselves in this position of immense power mm-hmm. and and their algor- their dumb algorithms <laughs> to decide what <laughs> what is acceptable uh, and what's not um, and that is a, a, an absolutely extraordinary situation and of course quite predictably it started with some of the most distasteful Mm -hmm. people on the internet that allowed so many people to say, well, that's good to see them losing their megaphone. That's the danger, though. (laughs) And how quickly... Yes, that's uh, morphed. And I think so that on the social media side and then within uh, the mainstream media, the people who have been the great... uh, um vanguards of transparency, of professional journalism, of this transformation and modernization of the media to deal with the the enormous effects of the surveillance state and uh, other things. So the likes of course of Julian Assange, uh-huh. but also journalists like Glenn Greenwald, yeah. you know, <laughs> who sort of blew out of The Guardian once he realised the enormous constraints there, award-winning journalist to set up the Intercept. Yeah. Intercept and then you know, with this great lineage on the left and then find himself isolated by his own editors there and leaving there. I saw him on Fox News the other day. Well, that's, that's this... You know, irony that there you've got um, uh, Tucker Carlson mm-hmm. and Greenwald, mm-hmm. you know, uh, agreeing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's only through people like Greenwald that I've sort of followed over a long time that I ended up seeing who this character on Fox News uh, was Tucker Carlson because, you know, I mm. don't pay attention to you know, those sort of things. And, oh, well, this this guy, you know, says a whole lot of reasonable things even though I can see he comes from a, a completely different yeah. sort of cultural view of the world <laughs> than I do. Um, and to see him and uh, Glenn Greenwald and, of course, Glenn Greenwald and people like um, Edward Snowden and others who've spoken this truth to power, finding themselves the only venues or places that they are sort of able to speak uh, with people, yeah, that that they wouldn't associate with. So I think the the positive of that is that building of of conversations across those old bridges, of course, and, mm. and finding um, commonality. I, w- I would bring that back to the ground and, and saying, especially in rural communities, you know, talking to the ordinary person about um, something, you know, to do with sustainable land management and passion for the, the land and finding a commonality with people uh, historically as long as you didn't mm. talk about politics. And I, I found that in, in my own uh, work here that uh, in our long-running project adjacent Meliodora, I mean, it's not really mm. a project, it's an unfunded, mm-hmm. unapproved, anarchistic sort of version of land care but without the paperwork and the poisons that's been going on here on public land for 30 years, that really came out of a working relationship between me and a guy who was uh, about a decade older than me, who was fourth-generation local. And if I could be described as a um, university-educated, middle-class left-wing, mm-hmm. ex-urban greenie, he could have been described as a, a rural, redneck, right-wing libertarian. Right. And we found, you know, working together, uh, doing things down the gully, planting trees, making tracks, uh, you know, we had this amazing uh, common focus and energy and bringing different perspectives But it wasn't wise to talk about the Gulf War. (laughs) This is, you know, back in the early 90s or or Muslim (laughs) immigration (laughs) or um, a number of other subjects. But so I think that's those connections and conversations are also very, very important. Are you aware of an online group called Rebel Wisdom? No, I haven't. Come across that. They're great.
0: They're one of my favorite podcasts and content creators at the moment. And they like others now gotten to a point where the information landscape has become so convoluted and labyrinthine. People have become so hot headed and the conversations are just going nowhere. They curate really amazing new form discussions on all these things. So I'll send you a link to them anyway. Mm. The free speech issue, don't have to linger on it for too long, but I mean, this is a very old discussion. This isn't anything new. And this is one of the things that bugs me about internet culture at the moment. It's as if anything that was invented before Google is somehow irrelevant because it's just disposable due to its senility and um, (laughs) old ways. But this isn't a new discussion. The way we've handled free speech, at least in the West, you know, it ain't perfect, but There were caveats put on free speech. Advocating for freedom of expression does not necessarily make one an absolutist on the subject. There are numerous caveats to freedom of expression that have been long recognized. For instance, the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution protects free speech while allowing for important limitations on certain categories of speech, such as obscenity, fraud, child pornography, speech integral to illegal conduct, speech that incites imminent lawless action, speech that violates intellectual property law, true threats, and commercial speech such as advertising. Defamation that causes harm to reputation is a tort and also an exception to free speech. This is not a new discussion. There were a number of caveats, ethically and like legally recognized. Those are being discarded now and they've been discarded with their claim to be warranted because of emergencies like COVID and the apparent rise of right-wing extremism, da-da-da-da-da-da, and the fact that we just find ourselves in a new information landscape, the internet. Once was this great bastion of information exchange and communication, and now it's seen as that plus a breeding ground for radicalization. That's in part used to warrant censorship. I wonder just as like the printing press changed things and then radio changed things and then television changed things. And we had to update the way we navigate issues such as censorship and free speech. Like, how much have things changed just because of the internet? Do we actually have to go back to first principles and look at this? What I fear is that when like those first very, very loud, bombastic, easily hateable individuals got kicked off the internet, that first kind of round of censorship a few years ago, and lots of people did say, oh, great, because I didn't like him anyway. But that's the danger. That's the legislation of morality, right? That's just preference. I don't like him. He says ugly
1: things. Therefore, it's OK under the law to get rid of him. Yes, well, of course, this all references back, or should, <laughs> as you, as you uh, point out, to Voltaire's um, statement about um, not agreeing with you, but defending your Right, <laughs> uh, right. Speak uh, as a as a, a, a great principle. I think certainly the censorship that I was seeing starting to emerge um, in I suppose starting in the in the Trump era and you know mostly in in the local media in Australia uh, struck me as stronger in its consensus through initially the mainstream media as uh, anything I remember in the Cold War mm. uh, when there was said to be this existential threat from, you know, a hostile, mm-hmm. uh, completely different way of organising society in the Soviet Union uh, and China. and But I think the roots of the current... Uh, structures, really, we have to look at uh, the Bush administration, 9 11, and the war on terror, which of course was externally focused, but was a complete f- uh, structure, uh, a fairy story, totally fabricated. To justify the invasion of multiple countries to rearrange the geopolitical chessboard in the face of mm-hmm. both peak oil and climate change. Uh, And test whether society would tolerate the infrastructure of surveillance, such as the Homeland Security Department, the testing of extracurricular, uh, extra uh, judicial detention, Guantanamo Bay, and Mm -hmm. all of those sorts of structures, and then the bringing together of those things to internalise those sort of structures within societies rather than just them being out-focused, outward-focused. Yeah, and we and we bought it. That became a new normal. Yes. So I I, I see very much that the turning point that we're now at, I suppose I felt that since uh, following 9-11 that... Either there would be uh, a rapid shift into um, a fascist state and close down of the internet back then, uh, or the underlying uh, flaws and uh, obscenities of the world organisation and the basis of life... Uh, by, you know, regime change for control of oil resources or all of those things, the, the failure of that uh, would become so evident that it would lead to a radical restructuring of society. Now, in fact, neither of those things actually happened. No. Uh, there was just, you know, the progressive shift towards the surveillance state and, and, and fascism... Uh, at the same time that larger numbers of people became more disenfranchised, not believing in the institutional structures of the society around them. And, of course, as a growing up in a, a, a politically radical family, I took for granted that, you know, we didn't sort of believe or trust the institutional structures of society, but... Mm. That's okay for a minority of people, a small minority of people, to believe that, but it's very unstable when, uh, you know, a significant proportion of the population starts to lose faith in institutions, you know, those structures. But rather than see this as sort of like a terrible thing by an evil elite default sort of view on the on the the libertarian right, that this is a completely unnecessary closing down of everything. I I view it more in terms of, well, we're hitting the brick wall of the limits to growth, both in terms of the depletion of resources and in the adverse consequences, most dramatically, in climate change. So what is the plan? (laughs) Because... There doesn't appear at the surface to be any serious capability in the society to do anything else Mm. but hit the brick wall. It's concerning. So when we talk about conspiracies of, you know, the World Economic Forum to shut down the world and, um, you know, control what people can do, yes, well, on the surface of it, let's accept that that's what's happening rather than just a some sort of self-organising dynamics, that this is actually a sort of a plan. Um, Rather than seeing it as an evil plan, I think it's relevant to see it as, oh, this is actually the elites. Finally, they actually have a plan for how to power down the world economy, how to shut parts of it down, progressively keep some sort of functionality and deal with these existential threats. Now, of course, inevitably, any such sort of plan or self-organising mechanism that reflects the power of really important interest groups will be some sort of future that at least leaves them on the top of maybe smaller uh, castles than what they currently sit on. but. (laughs) <laughs> you know, not not to expect that. Oh, that whole structure is going to be um, disappear because elites go. Oh, look, sorry, we were wrong. This whole basis of society, based on endless extraction of resources and economic growth, uh, sorry, we were wrong about that. We'll have to start from first principles again. How we should we organise society? Mm to expect that of course is would be incredibly naive. So in that sense I sort of see okay well that's the sort of emerging plan what what's our plan? Mm. You know what what you know and that of course the idea of a grand plan is itself inherently uh, flawed I I think and a lot of the movements see that we must deal with the situations we find ourselves in while having some sort of um, ethics and principles to guide how how we move in in, in the future I mean it's a, it's a it's a complex and nuanced picture but I I think the the position of you know, we must angrily defend our rights to be able to get on a plane and go to the other side of the world whenever we like, that that world is coming to an end. Indeed. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. one way or another. So, of course, the mechanisms by which, you know, oh, you are allowed but you aren't or what is the story that goes with that, of course, you know, is, ends up being a constructed yeah. one.
0: Yep. I can appreciate that the majority of people working in these kind of extra governmental, unelected, I don't even know if there's a term to describe them all. Is there a collective term for like, un davos institute trilateral commission Mm. i can appreciate that the people working within them are all normal human beings erring on the side of human welfare and environmental welfare and there's a great deal of lip service to the environment from the davos institute in particular but going through their great reset Mm. publication one thing that concerns me is the almost utter lack of mention of any localism or human, human community-scale frameworks. It's all reshuffling the deck in a new world back into their pockets, back into the power
1: structure. Uh, uh, absolutely. You know, the, the deep existential threat to the current system from the limits of nature of nature's guiding rules cannot really be escaped, but, of course, the desperate moves to try and maintain the central control um, and do that in some sort of downsized version of of the, you know, previously expanding global economy to a a more limited one uh, is that issue that I suppose... Back in the 1970s, with these debates that were happening around the the time of the formation of the permaculture concept, I I saw that this great lineage of redistributive politics and uh, creating a global middle class of consumers, while my family heritage says that that was part of a great struggle for mm. equity achieved during the 20th century, my environmental, energetic, mm. uh, ecological understanding that underpinned permaculture said, well, maybe this was actually just a way to grow the cake faster by redistributing wealth to really tap that enormous power that fossil fuel represented. Right, And that by 1972 with the peaking of US oil and the the limits to growth uh, analysis, elites had started to understand that the future expansion of growing the economic cake was actually limited and that maybe it might be necessary to start pushing people off the gravy train of middle-class affluence. And so we had the emergence of the... Uh, economic rationalist ideas that, you know, money doesn't grow on trees. Right. And, you know, that, um, that gradually sort of constricting that sense of entitlement in at least the long affluent countries. Uh, so these, these processes started to constrain that previous growth there'd been at the same time that the the reluctance to let that expansion of the global middle class happen in other countries also kept the centres of empire for decades stopping that, that uh, spread. Now, if that spread had happened, we still would have hit the limits hmm. at about the same time that we have. It's just that it would have been a more globally distributed experience of modernity than we actually have had. Right. You know, so those large sort of geopolitical uh, forces, I've always seen those as as being driven by those underlying um, energetics. And it's possible to, to see how... Localization, relocalization in some form is absolutely inevitable in an energy descent future. It cannot be stopped, but it doesn't necessarily show up in the desirable forms that you know that uh, w- you know advocates
0: you know might have
1: express. Where
0: do you see it going now? I mean, post-COVID, using your future scenarios, crash on demand models
1: and nomenclature, like what are you thinking now? I, I, no, well, it's very difficult. Um, I Last year, I wrote quite a few pieces about the pandemic, and I think those pieces and my thinking generally moved in an arc from uh, uh, being sort of very, very focused well before uh, uh, government warnings that this could be a repeat of the 1918 flu pandemic or or something worse. Uh, You know, definitely that that was on the cards and an enormous energised preparation. And then uh, the uh, excitement in terms of seeing people's Uh, gut-level response to focusing on the basics of um, restarting uh, uh, the household and community, non-monetary economies and Mm -hmm. all of those things, and then even some begrudging acceptance of or appreciation of governments um, uh, setting aside the gods of free market capitalism for the sake of some sense of of plan to respond and, mm-hmm. and then progressively moving in the arc to incredible concern about those structures. And at the same time, I've been very aware of the intensity of uh, toxic identity politics that could be a threat to the permaculture movement, mm-hmm. that I see myself as needing to emphasise unity within the diversity of views that mm-hmm. exist so that I've found myself increasingly in a position of uncertainty between that radical resistance uh, action of um, uh, of my... Uh, youthful years uh, and the how do we focus on the positives, how do we sort of ignore those uh, divisive issues. So then in some ways that's been for me a a sort of a quiet space uh, trying to sort of reflect on what's happening um, Mm. and how I spend, you know, the social capital, you know, what forms of capital be in a process of becoming worthless currency. Right. <laughs> in the world that emerges. So to move on from the uh, personal angst and re- reflection to sort of like really answer your question, I feel that um, there's likely to be a series of unfolding crises that will... Keep knocking uh, the system, oh. you know, forward in in different ways, um, and um, uh, the uh, we may see things like, for example, a cyber pandemic, uh-huh. which could affect the global financial system uh, because it can't continue. On its course, either, and there needs to be some explanation for why it's it's shut itself down or been shut down. Or well, there's been lots of hinting at that. Yeah, um, so I, I I feel that the the COVID story is it, a little bit hard <laughs> to keep sustaining, and that it's quite possible that as it that story becomes Weaker and the sort of fear and and loathing around it becomes harder to sustain, there'll be some other crisis that will sort
0: of shunt it sideways. I smell the exact same thing happening, just in the same way that the war on terror has apparently dissolved. (laughs) Yes. You know? I've been wondering, what's next? Short of a fake alien invasion, I think it will be (laughs) some kind of cyber crash.
1: Yeah, now, the... The other one, of course, is the ongoing accelerating cases of um, uh, natural disasters. Mm. but those tend to be in a in a globally connected world. Each one tends to uh, somehow be sort of contained to its geographic territory mm. and while they're they're catastrophic. They don't have this sort of simultaneously integrative effect in the sort of hyper-connected yeah. uh, global world the way a pandemic <laughs> does because, of course, the world is brilliantly set up for the spread of microbes. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, we couldn't have designed it better. <laughs> um, uh, and... You know, similarly, of course, the financial system, you know, has those uh, same same characteristics, but it, it, it is, um, I think, uh, really important for people to focus on the the local connections with people who they have interactions with and uh, will become increasingly dependent on uh, because those relationships are the, the greatest uh, security. And I think that sense of um, being aware of what's going on in the world but being able to act locally, locally, the the thinking globally and acting locally is still a, a, a sort of a, a, a powerful framework. But to some extent, one is increasingly toxic and sort of undermining of positive focus, mesmerising to some extent, mm. and that that means within communities and networks, there's needs to be people who are keeping their eyes on the horizon, who are investigating the rabbit holes (laughs) by whatever means uh, are available and helping to inform those who are strongly focused on the, you know, how do we grow food? How do we look after people? How do we do things in simple ways? Mm. Um, How do we deal with what's actually happening uh immediately and maintain those uh those connections at the same time as trying to maintain the connections to the to people who are in this sort of hardening version of mm. you know the command economy uh or whatever form i mean i i think one of the other great chances is the geopolitical turnover that the world that we've been used to since 1945 has got a very high chance of fracturing and quite a possibility that, you know, China uh, could emerge as the hegemon with um, uh, an alliance with uh, Russia, Iran, you know, and many, many other countries in a grand... Eurasian hegemon and that the United States could sort of unravel quite rapidly. And, you know, I I think that's really more on the cards than the idea that this American centred world order could exist, you know, for another 50 or 100 years. Well, it's inevitable that there's systemic wide change
0: occurring, obviously. I've noticed myself grieving, actually, going through a kind of five stages kind of thing. But very recently, just having a real sober look at it and realizing that I at least have to act as if it's done. It's gone within myself, dying to old uh, expectations, projections of the future, plans, um, the good and the bad. it's inevitable that it's on its way out. Mm. I'm less concerned about the fact that there's regime change or power centres and structures moving and shifting Mm. than I am about what type of regime they export. And maybe all the information I'm receiving is uh, biased and thwarted, but... um, I don't like the idea of their system as it currently stands, the surveillance system and social credit system being exported here. Yeah.
1: What you were saying about grieving, I think the work by Jim Bendel and uh, others in the Deep Adaption Network, right. mainly focused around the realities of uh, climate chaos. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but, you know, I, I, I think there's a lot of those... Processes that um, you know many people are obviously going through in in, in different uh, levels. Look in in terms of the geopolitical. I think you know Australia is this you know ridiculously meat in the sandwich between mm-hmm. the failing American empire and the and yeah. the rising. Chinese one obviously and that's sort of become an increasingly sort of uh, focus of uh, dilemma and um, uh, we look like we're not making a very good um, uh, fister of that but no. I see Australia has has had this enormous privilege um, uh, you know in uh, the past era and it it's made logical sense that we would end up becoming part of the uh, the Chinese orbit, mm-hmm. even if the American empire shrinks back to what it was in the turn of the 20th century, controlling the Americas, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we could become, yes, a colony, if you like, of, of China. And the normal way to think about that would be, gee, they'll treat us uh, a lot more roughly than we have being a colony of... Uh, britain america uh, mm. empire whether that's just for sort of cultural historical um, sort of payback or, or 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 whatever and so we could ex- expect that whatever how we exist under a world where china is dominant would be um Certainly, uh, pretty undesirable. But another perspective on that is that yes, the... please give me one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, look, the Chinese civilization has a, a sort of a deep, ancient history mm-hmm. of of not actually being expansionist. That even at its greatest levels and control, it, it expected um, you know the the nations around the medieval kingdom to sort of by homage, but they govern their own affairs yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, and the the possibility that without the twin threats that the Chinese feel, one is the amazing sophistication of the american empire's ability to conjure soft power of discontent amongst. Um, uh, local populations uh, through, uh, you know, yeah. uh, velvet revolutions and yeah. uh, and whatever you know. So the mm-hmm. you know that manipulation into countries that they fear that and they fear the damaged, wounded hegemon with the great nuclear power might just do really, really unwise things once it realises it's going down but once those threats uh sort of appear to attenuate due to actually internal collapse the chinese could end up being you know much more benevolent uh much more much less ruthless in their internal control uh and certainly in their treatment of um uh you know the foreign nations uh on the fringe of the Middle Kingdom. Well, I hope you're right. Uh, But
0: who knows? I hope you're right. I hadn't thought like that before. Probably getting close to winding up. I wanted to ask, though, I was looking in my bookshelf the other day and I've got the um, old A3 size Meliadora book. Yeah. Which I think is actually one of the most valuable and underrated permaculture publications out there because, one, you know what you're doing as a writer and a practitioner. The fact that it documents the process and the project from the very beginning Thinking through and what you're after, and where you looked, and why, why you bought, where you did, how you designed it, how you built it. You did a update to it. I think ten years after that. Was it ten years? Yeah, in
1: two thousand and five, we produced it as an ebook with some uh, update uh, material, um, and that's uh, still available as a. Uh, download. There's actually still, people can still get uh, copies. Um, It's on the, yeah, the homegrown store, the big A3 book. There's still a few of those uh, uh, in existence. Great book. Uh, But uh, yeah, the um, ebook, well, it was our version of an ebook before there were ebooks. It's a, uh, a screen readable PDF with interactive uh, menus that show all the original plans and, and photos in high-resolution yeah. uh, colour and then with some uh, more uh, additional material. But that was done in 2005. We, we've we never done uh, something further on that. That was going to be
0: my question. Is there any plan for another update?
1: Well, what, what we uh, are doing is... Um, uh, last year during the the um, uh, the lockdowns, we uh, did a, a tour, an online tour. That has all been edited into a uh, you know the whole day tour of the property into a series of pieces that we're uh, putting up online that will be accessible uh, to people. Okay. And so there's that sort of greater complementarity between that and the um, uh, the ebook book that uh, details some of those whys and wherefores of the of the property it was very interesting actually because we had um, a small number of uh, people within the restrictions at the time uh, for the, the actual tour so I was speaking to people there and the sort of the magic of the online um, streaming was happening at the same time, but we captured all that uh, uh, material. So it was, yeah, very weird in a way um, after doing tours for so many uh, years, uh, that sort of uh, format where you're speaking Here intimately and speaking globally. All right. Well, David Holmgren, thank you so much for joining us. I really
0: appreciate you taking the time. It's a chat I've been wanting to have for quite a while. I guess those who aren't familiar with you or want to go find out more about you can head to the
1: website. Is it holmgren.com? Yeah, holmgren.com.au and we're we got a long overdue rebuilding of that website, which is making all of my uh, written material and other material much more uh, accessible uh, format. Um, quite a lot of work going into that. So we're hoping to launch that um, uh, within the, the next month. And, of course, there's the uh, Retro Suburbia Uh, website with all the positive work related to the book and the access to the whole uh, Retro Suburbia book as um, uh, an online uh, for on a pay what you feel uh, basis and of course the future scenarios website that original work that we we referenced uh, is still up as a, a, a website where people can Uh, read online Um, but yeah essays like you mentioned like the crash on demand uh, essay all of of those will be in much more accessible searchable format they're all uh, there in the current website but it's a bit of a a labyrinth to find things at the moment. There's a lot of
0: content oh that's awesome glad to see it'll all be uh, in one spot all right, mate. Well, thank you again.
1: All the best. Uh, well, good to good to talk and uh, find uh, common sense of these difficult times. Yeah, indeed, it's valuable. Okay, doc. Thanks, mate. Okay. See ya. All the best.